Our first speaker for our conference is our brother Gary George from Sovereign Grace Chapel in Southbridge, Massachusetts. He's been there since 1992. He's been a speaker at this conference, has written books, and he's a good friend. We invite him now to share the word with us. Good morning, everybody. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For the rising of last year at the conference, said, would you like to speak next year at the conference? I said, well, I guess I could. He asked me what I'd like to speak on. I said, I think I'd like to speak on uh, the influence of New Covenant theology on pastoring. He goes, oh, that sounds like a very good subject. But then uh, six months later, he called me and told me that he wouldn't be able to, uh, to speak and attend the conference, so he asked if, uh, if I would take an extra session. So I reluctantly said that I would, and uh, I'm going to try to expand on, on the role of theology and ecclesiology added to the impact of New Covenant theology on pastoring. I know we'd all love to have Brother John here opening up the session as we're so accustomed to have him, but if it's, so, if it's any consolation to you, my father's first name was John, so I don't feel too out of place then, speaking up here. All right, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. I'd like to just utilize this text for uh, our purposes this morning in the first message of the two that I'm going to be given. I'm going to read it in an alternate translation. The NIV here says, They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, talking about the teachers, of course, for people, and this is what I would like to concentrate on, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. How many of you are in the same denomination today as you were as a child growing up? Would you raise your hand? Okay. How many of you uh, were at one time Arminian and are no longer Arminian? Would you raise your hand? Okay. How many of you have switched your theologies from either covenant theology, dispensational, theo or th dispensational theology, to new covenant theology? Would you raise your hand? Okay, so maybe 50%. Uh, the point I'm trying to bring out here is that we have obviously made shifts in our belief system. And I want to give you just a little autobiographical sketch of myself so you can know a little bit where I've come from and some of my experiences and why I'd like to talk on a topic like this. For me, I grew up in an Eastern Orthodox church. My parents were immigrants from Albania, so I grew up in the Eastern Orthodox church for uh, about 23 years when I was converted uh, at about the age of 23. Prior to that, I went to college, and I went to a Jesuit-run Roman Catholic college, and it was while I was there that I got introduced to Roman Catholicism. And um, matter of fact, being a football player and an athlete, before our games, we were compelled to have to go to Mass before our games. I don't think they do that today, but they used to back then, we had to do that. And that was my introduction to it on a, a sort of one-to-one -one basis. And I became very friendly with a number of the Jesuits. As a matter of fact, I remember the first year we arrived, I started to get interested in spiritual things. And being a, on the football team, we were having a preseason. We were on campus before any of the other students were. So we had the privilege to register for classes first. And I remember going to the registration 
and I'm not sure what I'm going to take exactly at this point, and I saw a course, the title of it was called Jesus. That was the title, and I go, wow, that sounds very interesting. Then there was another subject that was offered to by uh, the school at that time called The Rise of Early Christianity. So I took that. Well, I ended up switching my major from psychology to theology, and I graduated with a theology major from a Jesuit-run college. While I was at college, or just prior to going into college, I became interested in spiritual things. And uh, there was an article in the local newspaper about uh, something along the lines of a Jesus movement. And the head of the Department of Psychology at the college that I was going to was going to be a speaker. And I was going to college as a psychology major, so I thought this would be a good idea for me to kind of acquaint myself with the head of the department. Plus, I'm very curious about this Jesus thing. So anyway, I went to that, and I got a bit involved with the charismatics for about four years. It wasn't real serious. It was just sort of casual. I dropped in on them at the what they called the Charisma Coffee House. I would go there oftentimes on Friday night, attend a few Sunday evening services, but I was still a committed orthodox. I was a Sunday school teacher in their Sunday school program. But as I said, I got saved. I was almost 23 at the time. And it was through the instrumentality of those known as Plymouth Brethren that I met doing an evangelistic outreach in the city of Worcester, Mass., where I'm from. And uh, God used the brethren there and uh, the word of God, Isaiah 53, and God converted me. And it wasn't too long after that that I felt totally disconnected from my, the church that I grew up in, the people that I knew from infancy. And the verse that really struck me was Proverbs 21, 16. He that remaineth in the congregation, uh, the man that wandereth out of way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. So I really recognized the difference between me, a child of the living God, someone that had life from above, born of the Spirit of God, that had desires for the things of God, and those that were just going through the system, uh, saying all the prayers, but really not having any, any genuine life or indications of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, I was with the Plymouth Brethren for 16 years, had some wonderful years among them. I learned the word um, probably best there because I was pretty much, uh, I wasn't a book person so much as the book person, for all of those years, which was very good for me to get saturated with the scriptures. Uh, they didn't advocate too much reading outside of the word of God, and only if you did, you had to pretty much confine yourself to those that were of that stripe. Otherwise, you could be bordering on heresy. Well, among the brethren, I was with various factions of them. I was with the open brethren, and if you know anything about brethren, these terms are going to, if you don't, you're going to think these are strange terms, but they were open brethren. I went was with them for almost two years. Then I was with the tight open brethren for five years, and then I was with the exclusive brethren for nine years. The exclusive brethren were the ones that I wound up with for the last nine years of my time with the brethren, and I was going to uh, the local church in Boston that actually John Nelson Darby himself started in 1860s or so, and this was a continuation of that uh, church. Well, they didn't call themselves a church or even an assembly. They called themselves the meeting because that's where they met, and they called themselves the meeting because Darby believed the church was in ruins and it was inappropriate to use the terms that the churches would use as far as uh, ecclesiastical language was concerned. Well, among, uh, while I was among them, 
um, I had a personal switch of the, uh, my theology and eschatology from the book of Romans, and I ventured out to go to Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, because I was just curious. I wanted to see and hear something that wasn't what I was accustomed to hearing because I knew I was breaking away from it. I felt a little bit of a guilt and a betrayal in walking into the seminary, and I didn't know where I was going, and I walked into an auditorium. It was maybe about 80 or 100 students, and I was sitting under the ministry of Meredith Klein, who was teaching Old Testament hermeneutics. That was my introduction to the seminary. After a little while, I asked for permission from the registrar's office if I would be allowed to sit in on classes. I didn't have the money to pay for classes. I had four children. Gordon Conwell was an hour and a half away from my home. Plus, being among the Plymouth Brethren, they didn't in any way recognize credentials of any sort. But I just simply wanted to go and learn, and uh, I was given the permission to be able to kind of audit classes, and I did that for about two years. So I got familiar with Greg Beal and Scott Haithman and Roger Nicole and people of that sort. And uh, so I, I felt that I had to leave uh, my dispensational brethren, the Plymouth Brethren. It was a heartache to do that, but I felt that where I was spiritually and where I was uh, biblically, theologically, that I had to move on. And I found myself among those known as a, a local church called a Reformed Congregational Church. And I was with them for about two years, and they wanted to start another church in the city of Worcester, which was about 15 miles from where they were. And since I lived in Worcester, I would be a part of that church plant. Well, after several months, the decision was made by that core group of people that the form of government that they were going to vote for was one known as Presbyterianism, the PCA church. So if PCA church was about to be planted, I was a part of that planting. I wasn't personally bent on Presbyterian at the time. Although I was paedo-baptistic, I also had believer-baptistic views as well. There was sort of a combination. When I was with the Dobby brethren, I'll call them that just for understanding purposes, uh, they held to what is called household baptism. So that if a family member was converted, they were allowed to be able to baptize their whole family on the basis that they were converted. They were allowed now then to bring their children onto what they would call Christian ground. That didn't mean that they were converted, just simply meant similar to covenant theology in some ways as far as Pedro-Baptist is concerned, but there was a slightly different slant. Well, anyway, when I was with the PCA church, I never felt comfortable with aligning myself with them formally. Uh, one of the mornings that convicted my wife and I as we were sitting in the service, announcement was made by the pastor of a child, uh, one of the families, a child was born that morning at 4 o'clock, and the way he announced it was, we have a new member of the church. And he announced the birth of the new baby, and my wife and I elbowed each other like, give me a break, something's not right here, you know. And I had difficulties with some of the statements of the Westminster Confession. And just about that time, an opportunity arose where a Reformed Baptist church was having some difficulties, and they needed, I think, some assistance. I knew some of the brothers that were part of that church. They were, they were also a, a church plant, and the one who planted the church was of a Reformed Baptistic uh, persuasion, and the Constitution and everything uh, read in such a way that empowered the pastor in a very monarchical type of a way, um, and that was a bit of a conflict with those that wanted more of a congregational style of government, 
and more of a corporate participation in some of the church decisions where the pastor pretty much prohibited that from happening. I thought I could maybe help them in their, their final meeting, the congregational meeting that they held, and uh, it wasn't possible. There was a division, and uh, there was only a few that were left, and they asked me if I would be willing to pulpit supply, and I, I did. But remember, I'm still a member of the, uh, the Reformed Congregational Church. I'm a part of the PCA Plant Church, and now Reformed Baptist Church wants me to uh, be the pastor or at least an interim for the time being. Well, I, po I, I proposed that to the, um, uh, my elders. There were four of them of the congregational church, and uh, they forbade me to, to go ahead with it. They didn't feel that it was uh, theologically right. They thought I'd be running into trouble and error, et cetera, et cetera, and didn't give me the liberty to make the choice on my own. So I felt somewhat restrained. And that went on for several months. I would still visit the church, help in some ways, but I wasn't formally uh, pastoring them. And then Richard Belcher was a visitor, a speaker one, of the, uh, one week, and uh, apparently the congregation told them about my dilemma. And Richard Belcher called me into the office of the church building that we were meeting at the time. And he says, Brother Gary, he said, um, when do you think it's right for a sheep to not listen to the shepherds? And I said, I believe it's probably when the, sh when the shepherds aren't speaking the voice of the great shepherd. And he says, well, when do you think you're going to be ready to pastor this church? When, uh, when do you think you should make that move? And I says, I think this is probably the nail in the coffin for me to do that. And I did do that. I didn't win the favor, of course, of the elders. They didn't come to the ordination. They, they looked down on my activity and thought that we were going to run to, I was going to run to big trouble. But, and, and when I came in, I had to admit, I said, look, it, I'm Baptistic in many ways, but as far as my position on, on baptism, I'm, I'm really wishy-washy. I'm not clear on it. I, I'm, I'm covenantal. I'm pedo-baptistic. Um, I'm open to you know, believer baptism, but I just want you to know that well, they weren't at that point too concerned. And I don't think their theology was so deep that it, they really understood some of the ramifications. But a good brother friend of mine had recommended me to read a couple of books that were helpful. One was um, um, Kenneth Good. Is that his name? Good. Who wrote a book called A Baptist Reform. That was very helpful. And Paul Jewett's especially, Circumcision in the Covenant of Grace. Is that what it's called, Jack? Um... No, um, maybe infant baptism in the covenant of grace, something along that line. But that was a very helpful book and helped me really move out of the pedo-baptistic position into a full-baptistic position, pre-baptistic position. And uh, I then felt it much more liberty to be able to pastor the church from where they were coming from. We obviously had to make some alterations to, to the Constitution um, because of, both their and my convictions as far as church government was concerned, but I'll leave that for the moment. Um, and I have been there now for 22 years. We dropped the name Grace Reformed Baptist Church about 13 years ago and called ourselves uh, Sovereign Grace Chapel. and have been known by that name ever since. I still continue, though, to go to what is called the NERF monthly meetings, 
NERF stands for the New England Reformed Fellowship, and different pastors from around New England come together in one locale, and they, they basically uh, present papers. And I always look in advance what the paper's going to be on. The last two have been on, you know, strict covenant theology. I didn't think I could sit through that peacefully, so I chose not to go to that meeting. But anyway, my point is that of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. We do get affected by the particular Christians that we associate, associate ourselves with. Some can assimilate into that particular persuasion very easily. Others, and because they're, they're convinced of it, and others may possibly go against the grain because of convictions, because of biblical deeper studies that may move them on. And all of you have just testified to the fact that you have moved through some of these denominations, through some of these different theological schools of thought. When I'm asked, if, if I'm asked, what do I believe? Just, uh, just in a general way, I would say, well, I'm an evangelical, I'm born again. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But by someone who wants little more details, I guess I'd have to call myself this. I would say that I'm reformed in my soteriology. I'm new covenant in my theology. I'm amillennial in my eschatology. I'm credo-baptistic in my baptismal view. I'm a continuationalist, non-gullibilist as to my pneumatology. I hold the plural biblical eldership in regards to church leadership and congregational as to church government with the shepherding care of plural oversight. That's where I'm at. It's good to know beyond basic salvation doctrines, but it's not as vital. One must not be too anxious to accept the position. I'm where I'm at after many years of studying scripture, reading books, listening to tapes, attending conferences, conversing with professors, students, pastors, and informed friends also attending seminary. And even this is no guarantee that I or anyone else has arrived. I'm still learning. I want to be open to errors that I could be entertaining. I encourage people to be Berean in spirit, to not revere me or anyone else higher than the scriptures. Paul says that you might learn in us not to think above, of men above that which is written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And above everything else, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Well, that's enough, I hope, as an introduction to get you to start thinking about theology, ecclesiology, what we believe, what we practice, etc., etc. And I'm going to give you right now my thesis for these two messages. And this is a certain angle that I'm coming from. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the whole scope of Scripture. But one's theology is determined by one's hermeneutics. And one's hermeneutics is based on one's interpretation of how the Old and the New Testaments relate to one another. We're going to talk about that in our first message. Secondly, how one perceives the quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament will determine one's view of the church. And one's view of the church will determine what theological perspective he will embrace, and that will spawn the way pastoral ministry is carried out. I don't know if you've ever thought about the relationship between theology and pastoring, but it has struck me in recent years how that there is a correlation between the two, and I'll save that for my second message. Let me say some things then about 
the role of theology on ecclesiology. And we're going to look at some of the different theological camps and their views on different perspectives or different views uh, here and there on certain subjects. Let me say first, covenant theology sees the New Testament church as simply a continuation of the Old Testament church. They would look at Acts 7, verse 38. For instance, a verse that talks about the church in the wilderness seems to, in their mind, correlate the Old and the New Testament peoples of God as one people. Obviously, they would admit that there are some changes, but here's another verse, for instance, that they would use. And this rather shocked me when I discovered that this is a position that they would take. Ephesians 2.20 says that are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, who are those apostles and prophets? From a covenantal theological standpoint, many, if not most, would say that those are Old Testament prophets as well as New Testament prophets. So that the church is not founded, that is a New Testament church, is not founded uniquely and separatistically upon the New Testament apostles and prophets, but rather has its foundation in the Old Testament. That becomes very significant when it comes to their theological position. Dispensational theology sees the New Testament church as an intermediate people of God who have no connection to Old Testament Israel. And they would utilize the passages in Colossians and Ephesians that talks about the mystery hid in God from ages past. With the emphasis being on hid in God, they're suggesting that the hiddenness of it in God is not that it is hidden in the Old Testament scriptures, it's actually hidden from the Old Testament scriptures. So in other words, you cannot find the church referred to proleptically for the New Testament period of time, but rather it was hid in the secret councils of God, and it wasn't until, until the New Testament period in the Apostle Paul particularly who unveiled what otherwise was hidden and could not be found in the Old Testament. They may say that there are some parallels, there's some borrowed language that has usefulness for the New Testament church, but that the New Testament church is not the subject of Old Testament prophecy. My understanding of New Covenant theology would be that it sees the New Testament church as both connected and yet at the same time separate. And I would say Matthew 13, 52 would be a good verse for that where Jesus says, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So I, I would say we do see Pentecost as being a very significant point in the birth, birthing of the New Testament church. But we also see a strong correlation between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church from Romans chapter 11 with the olive tree, Galatians 6, 16, uh, references to Israel as being looked at as the new Israel of God. Uh, we've come to Mount Zion, the Jerusalem which is above is our mother. We are the circumcision. We are circumcised by the Spirit on the inward parts, etc., etc. I think indicates that the New Testament church is now coming in view in, I don't know if I want to say replacing Old Testament Israel, but I want to say its extension 
of it, and we'll talk more about how the network between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church actually operates. Covenant theology over-unifies the two Testaments. The first time I met Brother Riesinger, I had very, very superficial knowledge about New Covenant theology. This was back in, I think it's about the late 80s when I first met him. And uh, we went, Bob Murray was speaking at, uh, a, uh, at a conference that was being held and John was traveling with him at the time. And I took John aside and I says, John, what's the difference between dispensational theology and covenant theology? And like John typically is, he gave a very simple answer, but very profound. He says, covenant theology levels the two testaments off. Dispensational theology cuts them in half. And that stuck in my mind. And I wasn't sure what to think of it at that time. But that thought never left me. And it actually worked in me and it developed into a theology that I think I can say that I'm on the same page with Brother John and those that would hold to New Covenant theology. Well, anyway, Covenant theology, I believe, over-unifies the two Testaments, and I'm sure the majority of you would know that, and I don't need to go into so much detail about that to prove that. Dispensational theology, on the other hand, disunifies the two Testaments in a radical separation, and again, this idea of Colossians and, and, and Ephesians, Colossians uh, one in Ephesians 3 would be major passages along with Romans 16 verse 25 and 26 saying again that the church was not uh, revealed, was not spoken of in the Old Testament, was simply in the heart of God and therefore when you come to the New Testament and as you know there are those that are ultra dispensationalists and, and take certain passages out of the New Testament saying they have no relevance for the church it's still still Israel because God is still dealing with Israel and the time clock for them hasn't stopped yet etc etc New Covenant theology is a balance I think between unification and disunification of the two testaments Covenant theology puts new wine into old bottles Dispensational theology puts distilled wine into new bottles New Covenant theology I think, puts new wine into new bottles. Covenant theology and new covenant theology embrace, I believe, and there, there are, we're going to find that there's similarities between covenant theology and new covenant theology at times and similarities of dispensational theology to new covenant theology at times as well. Covenant theology and new covenant theology uh, would both embrace, I think, Augustine's statement that the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and that the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Something that a dispensationalist, I don't believe, can consistently affirm. But I think covenant theology and new covenant theology uh, can. Now, of course, there's going to be some, some specific differences on interpretations, but as a whole, I do see that they are similar in that way. Covenant theology and New Covenant theology see the age of the New Testament church periods as the last of the economic ages. Let me repeat that. This is an important point, I think. Covenant theology and New Covenant theology sees the age of the church period as the last of the economic ages. And by economic ages, I mean that where there, there's administration, there's this time is involved, it's temporal, there's still 
a state of, uh, of sin, etc. It's not the glorified state of the future. When we talk about economic stages, it's the general condition of man from the fall and before the perfected state comes. 1 Corinthians 10.11 talks about the church upon whom the end of the ages is come. The church upon whom the end of the ages is come. So there's no age beyond the age of the church age. Now this obviously spills into eschatology. And I don't know how you can avoid the relevance of eschatology to theology. I think they play off one of another. They're, there's a relationship between the two. If you're one, you're likely going to be the other. Now, I understand that there can be some different nuances of, of eschatological positions, but I think that your theology is going to dictate your eschatology or your eschatology is going to dictate your theology. I think at some point that is going to be a conclusion that one will have to make. Unless you have an eclectic theology where, where you may not have all the dots connected, so to speak, if I can put it that way, then maybe you can have some disjointing or uh, disunity in your theological perspective. So I would say 1 Corinthians 10, 11 is a significant verse in that regard. Romans 15, 4 talks about Israel in the Old Testament, that these things were written for our example, our being the church, that we have two, two testaments, two periods of time, an old covenant period of time and a new covenant period of time. There's no post-new covenant period of time. There's no intermediate covenantal or, or non-covenantal period of time between the old covenant period and the new covenant period. And uh, as a result, we have have then to examine us. So what is, what, what is the whole Bible referring to? Is it referring to Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church? And, and the, those two, you could say, periods of time are the exhaustive periods of time that take in all of biblical revelation prior at least to the new heavens and the new earth. So we have to talk a little bit then about the millennium. Where does that fit in? And that's a whole big subject as well that I'd love to talk about with you too maybe sometime and how can we reconcile some of the millennial views with, with biblical uh, texts and, and, and overall the biblical theme of the Bible. To me, it seems like um, the age of the church is the final age and what's to come is when the Lord Jesus returns. And what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus returns? Come ye blessed of my Father into what the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What kind of a kingdom is that? Is that a temporal kingdom? Is that an eternal kingdom? Well, he says to the goat, depart from you, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. These shall go away into everlasting life, talking about the sheep, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. So the duration of the two is equal. The duration of those that enter into the kingdom is equivalent to the duration of those that are cast into the lake of fire in their final judgment. So I don't see the kingdom as being temporal, as being a thousand-year period of time, but rather being an indefinite period of the eternal kingdom that the Lord has established. So I see the church then as being the final age of all of the ages of God's economic workings with people, and then we have the second coming of Christ and establishing of the eternal kingdom. And I don't see any room for a, a Jewish millennium 
with a rebuilt temple, with a return of the sacrificial system, with a re-inauguration of the Aaronic priesthood, especially in light of the fact that we have a Melchizedek priest who's going to be a priest for how long? Forever. So if you have an Aaronic priest functioning simultaneously with a Melchizedek priest, you've got a friction here. You, you have a dilemma on your hands because you can't have one priest functioning simultaneously with another when they're of different orders. And the book of Hebrews in, emphatically stresses that the Melchizedek priesthood has eclipsed forever the Aaronic priesthood. And that the temple, the physical temple, was associated with, with the peoples of God in the Old Testament. It was appropriate for the time. But now that we've come to the New Testament period of time, that has shifted to think that we would go back to a physical temple and that a literal building would be built once again. Uh, again, this all goes back to one of the premises is what is our hermeneutics? How do we understand the interplay between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The New Testament is composed of at least 325 direct citations from the Old Testament and as many as up, up to a thousand allusions to the New Testament. So there's a high proportion of the New Testament that contains the Old Testament. So I think one of the greatest tax, tasks for theological uh, searching is to look at the way the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. That to me is a, one of the keys of Scripture. And in my personal search, I found it necessary that I go through every New Testament quotation of the Old Testament, look at it in its context, look at the usage of it, look at the, the uh, Job's prophecy being fulfilled, David, Jesus, uh, Jesus now sitting on David's throne, the sure mercies of David in Acts 13, the, um, the tabernacle of David being constructed, Amos chapter 9, it's quoted by James, are they not being fulfilled in this present period of time? So if, if we postpone them or say that they're not fulfilled in this dispensation of time, then we're going to have to reinterpret the New Testament. And the way I have put it is that dispensational theology spiritualizes the New Testament to literalize the Old Testament. Whereas covenant theology and new covenant theology, at least new covenant theology, I think should, and, and I know covenant theology would, would, would spiritualize, excuse me, would literalize the New Testament and therefore have to spiritualize the Old Testament. And I know sometimes that word spiritualize sounds like a pejorative term. Oh, you're spiritualizing the Bible. Like right off the bat, that's supposed to send up red flags. But if Peter's telling me that Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled now, then I'm going to concede to what Peter says. I'm going to concede to what the New Testament says because the New Testament is a perfect commentary on the Old Testament. And that's where I think we have to go to the bank with Right there is the usage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that's what careful exegesis must be exhausted for us to come to the conclusions that we do. Covenant theology and New Covenant theology, as I've been talking already here, have eschatological similarities. 
Dispensational theology is distinct and must insist on a removal of the church from the world in a rapture so the program for national Israel can be reactivated. The 70 weeks of Daniel was interrupted, they say. Christ was crucified the 69th week, and now there remains a week of years, and that week of years is a is seven-year period of time, and that will occur after the church is raptured. So in other words, God's program with, with Israel was interrupted by the church, which was a mystery hidden God from ages past. He sort of just sprung that on us, put put Israel on hold, did a work with the bride of the church, and once he removes the church, the bride, then he'll reactivate his program with Israel, and then they will be brought back into the fold during that seven-year tribulation period of time, and those along with Gentiles converted in the tribulation period will pass into the millennial period of time. The temple will be rebuilt. The sacrificial system will be uh, re-inaugurated. Bloodshed will be and again, if you want to, if you have a literal hermeneutic, you must be consistent with it. And if you look at the description of Ezekiel's temple carefully, chapters 40 to 47, you will see there is bloodshed for the remission of sins. There's prohibitions about uh, utilizing animals that have died of themselves. I thought there wasn't supposed to be any death in the millennium, but we find animals that will, will, will are dead. Were they road killed or were they... Did they eat one another up? I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem to fit that golden age understanding that has been proposed by, by the premillennialist. And I say this in love. I, I'm still learning, and, and I, I want to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I, I just can't, for, my, for the life of me, see anything differently than this. Um, so let me uh, repeat that. Di dispensational theology... Has a, is distinct and must insist, insist on a removal of the church from the world and a rapture so the program for national Israel can be reactivated. Covenant theology and new covenant theology sees the new covenant, that is the second covenant, enduring till the parousia, till the second coming of Christ. Dispensational theology sees the new covenant formally established after the church is removed. Because, and I, I know there are different nuances among dispensationalists. Progressives didn't exist when I was converted, but they're on the scene. It was a, uh, the start of, uh, of a new type of dispensationalism with the publication of the Ryrie Study Bible, the New Schofield, and, and so on. It, was a, it, it started to be a little bit of a departure from classic dispensationalism. So... I'm using the terms kind of generically, and if you're of a dispensational sort, you might say, well, I don't believe that, and I'm still dispensational. I, I understand that, and I appreciate that fact, and I respect that. I'm not ignoring that. But I'm saying from a historical, classical standpoint of dispensational's position, they see that the new covenant has no direct application to the church currently, that when the church is removed, then that new covenant will be formally activated for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The land promises, the building of the temple, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we, we can go down all kinds of rabbit trails if I, and I don't want to be tempted to do that, so I'm going to avoid, avoid that. I'll just say what I've said. Let me make in closing some general remarks about the subject that is before us here. That is that one's theology is determined by one's hermeneutics. And one's hermeneutics is based on one's interpretation of how the old 
and the New Testament relate to one another. And these are some of the areas that have to be tackled. I would say number one is pneumatology. The activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus his activity, the Holy Spirit's activity in the New Testament. Is there a difference? I think in covenant theology, for the most part, you're going to, they will basically say no. That there's a similarity. There's an empowerment, sure, they would say, at Pentecost, but there's more or less a, a planing out of the two testaments as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned. We, I think that pneumatology is important because of not only has the church been empowered, but this goes back to the to, to our main subject here is that is Israel in the church. Was it was the church in the Old Testament? Or is the church a new formation? I believe that the, the church was prophesied in the Old Testament, not specified, though, in the Old Testament, because there's certain things, just like Jesus says, there are many things that I, I would love to tell you, but I can't tell you now. You won't understand them. And I think details of what the church age would be like would have been inappropriate, in a sense, for Old Testament writers to write about because the, 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 the comprehension of it would not be a reality until it would be fulfilled. And it took the New Testament and the New Testament scriptures, the writings of the New Testament, to unveil the magnitude of what the church is, the formation of a body, an, entire new, an entirely new body, which you and Gentile are united together, as Ephesians 2 says, as one new, that is entirely new man. By entirely new, I don't mean, wouldn't want to suggest that it has no no connection or correlation with Old Testament Israel to some degree, but that it is new in the sense that now there's a formation of the body of believers that wasn't conceived in the Old Testament. You have believers that are united one to another by the Holy Spirit. They are united to a risen head, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is a phenomenon. You talk about the French club or the chess club or the Y. There's no community of people that are bonded like the church of Jesus Christ in this world. And that's because of what the Holy Spirit is doing and has done from Pentecost on. So pneumatology, very important in our understanding on the way the Testaments relate to one another. Imputed righteousness, something that's obviously continuous. Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Romans brings that out, that there's an identicalness in the way in which conversion and us, the people of God, relate to Old Testament people of God. Faith, of course. Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. There were people of faith in the Old Testament. When Jesus met the woman of Samaria, he has to inform her, look, at the time is coming when they'll neither at Jerusalem nor in this... But he goes on to say, the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Prior to this, Israel was composed of false and true worshipers, and yet all of them combined are considered worshipers. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, what is his ministry? The axe is being laid to the root. A new work is about to begin. There's going to be a sifting, and that occurs with the New Testament. Faith remains and it transfers right into the New Testament. And even pragmatically in Hebrews 11, 
We have all the examples of all the men of God and women of God of the Old Testament, the Deborahs and the Sarahs and the Abrahams and Noahs, etc. by faith, by faith, by faith. And it tells us whose faith follow. Those who have spoken to the word of God, the elders, those are our forefathers of faith in the past in the Old Testament that we have as wonderful examples to us. So the Old Testament and New Testament are very important in their relationship to one another. And we praise God that we have an Old Testament that we can look at and we can see the examples of all of these people and learn of all of these things. Now there are certain things in the Old Testament that obviously need reinterpretation in the New Testament. The temple, the evolution from a physical to a spiritual temple. You are the temple of the living God. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you and whosoever shall defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's referring to the corporate communion of all believers. We now become the temple of God. And there's so many verses that we can refer to. Acts chapter 15, again, the tabernacle of David, which is being built in his time. Ephesians chapter 2, about the, the union, again, of the two, forming together that one new man that is considered to be the temple of the living God in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto the holy temple of God, in whom you also, what? Fitted together to form an habitation of God through the Spirit. So that seems to be the, the anti-typical fulfillment of what the temple represented in the Old Testament. So that these things, these paraphernalias, if you will, did not refer to themselves, but they were pointing forward to something greater. David's throne, where is that? What, what, is Jesus our king? Of course he is. Darby didn't believe that Jesus Christ was king of the church. He didn't believe Christ was king right now, that his kingship is in hibernation until his second coming, and once he returns, then he will take up his kingdom throne again and sit on David's and reign over the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The priesthood in the Old Testament, we know that that evolved into the New Testament, in whom all the building, uh, rather in... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about you also as living stones uh, built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's something that was foreign to Old Testament practices. You wouldn't find the laity and clergy, if you will, to be on the same spiritual level. That was an intent, I know, from Exodus chapter 19, but the reality of that is fulfilled in the New Testament when we have now truly the priesthood of all believers, and I think this will have a, an important part in our second uh, topic when we talk about the, uh, the impact of New Covenant theology on pastoring when we, under, when we talk about the priesthood of all believers. There are other things, of course, that are abrogated from the Old Testament. Some of these could be debated, I'm sure. Sabbath keeping. Is the church obligated to keep the Sabbath? Again, depending on, of course, your theological perspective, we know that covenant theology would advocate absolutely that the Sabbath must be maintained. I still don't really, I've never really been satisfied with their flipping the seventh day into the first day of the week and making that the Sabbath day, and why not maintain the seventh day as the Sabbath day keeper, keeping day? But that's not, not the case. Um, anyway, they see the Sabbath as still in vogue and that, it's appropriate and ex expected for the saints of God of the New Testament church to be keeping the Sabbath in some fashion like they did in the Old Testament. 
tithing uh, in some circles might also be um, something. And I, I know this, this, I'm not sure where all new covenant people would stand on this, but I personally don't see that tithing is, is again transported into the New Testament. I think that 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 indicates that there is no, no, no percentage that's put on what should be placed in our offering to the Lord, but rather it's what's given from the heart as the Lord prospers you and we're to do it cheerfully. There's nothing legalistically laid down as it would have been in the Old Testament for us to have uh, been compelled to do. Other things such as sacrifices, these are obvious that they have been uh, prohibited from continuing on. We know that Jesus Christ is our once and for all final sacrifice. And then we have the dietary laws, something that was very uh, stringently observed in the Old Testament. They couldn't eat anything that didn't chew the cud and pot the hoof. And yet in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 14, I think, verse 8, he says, there's nothing unclean of itself. I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. So obviously, something radically has changed for him to be able to say that. And then the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, when he also talks about every creature of good, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving and prayer, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Every creature of God is good. Now that would be out of place to have been said in the Old Testament, but absolutely perfectly rightfully said in the New Testament. And even the Sabbath, talking about Romans chapter 14, and I often, I often use this as a proof chapter to a Sabbatarian. How could Paul have said, he that observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he that observes not the day to the Lord, he doth not observe it. Paul is not criticizing a non-sabbatical position. He's actually giving liberty to the saints to work these things out. And if Sabbath day keeping was transposed into the New Testament, Paul would, would have been out of order to use that kind of language in Romans chapter 14. But he's giving liberty to the conscience of the believers to be able to exercise themselves on whichever day they want to in an appropriate fashion that they feel is correct for them to do. And Paul in no way steps on their toes. Well, these are just some of the things that we, we deal with when we're talking about uh, the role of theology. Uh, as I said, in the next session, I would like to talk about the, uh, the effects of theology on our pastoring, particularly. That was what I originally had asked John that I would, if I was asked to speak, I said I would, I would like to probably speak on that because I think that theology does have a role in the way in which people are to be pastors. And I think depending on what, what theological school you find yourself in, maybe, not always, but maybe a determining factor on the way in which the flock is pastored. Because we'll find out in the next session that there can be some abuses. There can be some positions held by people and attitudes of leaders, particularly pastors, who, uh, because of their theological position, feel constrained to have to pastor people in certain ways and I think it infringes and it prohibits the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. And I'm not saying that people don't need guidance and counseling 
in rebuke at times and correction, those are all in place. But I think that there's a certain demeanor and mannerism that's appropriate for leaders and pastors over God's people in their leadership of them and how they guide them that would be Christ-honoring and that would be in harmony with what the New Testament teaches us. Um, maybe because I'm a little ahead of time. Should I go right up to 12, uh, brother? Or you want, I can cut it off right now. Okay, so I've got about seven minutes or something of that sort. I really, really don't have any written material that I want to cover between now and the next seven minutes. Um, but I just want to impress upon you that this subject of, of theology and ecclesiology and in theology and pastoring, I think are, uh, especially the latter one, um, most of our Bunyan conferences in the past, rightfully so, have dealt a lot with doctrine, with theological perspectives, and really plunging to the depths of certain passages and exegeting them and talking about the covenants and the relationship between the covenants and, and how do we understand the new covenant and uh, we are the weaknesses of covenant theology or dispensational theology or our own theologies. What, what sort of makeover do we need to perform to bring it more in harmony with the word of God? Um, I was influenced, I must say personally, um, in my past when uh, I was in this transition period, um, attended a conference where John Piper spoke. And um, I got to speak with him in person and from some things that he said was very much where I was going. And what was disturbing me was I felt locked up in a system that didn't allow me to interpret passages that might violate the systematic theological position that I was holding or the particular denomination that I was associated with at that time point was holding, and I felt almost like I was a violator. I was a transgressor. And he helped me in his message, in that conversation, to really say, what is biblical theology? Um, that really supersedes systematic in that sense. And, and, and I know biblical theology can be defined in different ways, and our brother Hamilton and brother White and other brothers that were here will certainly give more light on, on, on these sorts of things that far advanced than what I could, would give you, I'm sure. But from my perspective, this idea of having a system, whether it's a Schofield system interpretation or a covenantal theological system of interpretation, if you feel like you have to filter everything through that system first before you can exegete it, then I'm afraid that you're deviating from the way the Bible should be understood. And if you never arrive at a formal conclusion as to biblical, what your own personal biblical theology is, I think in some ways that's a good thing because it shows that you're still developing, you're still growing, you don't have all the answers. It's not all nicely packaged for you. You're still working through these things and you're coming to the text objectively. I remember when I, I was doing a study on the New International Version when it came out years ago, in the 80s, when I was with the Plymouth Brethren, um, they kind of looked to me a little bit for help on translations and so on. And I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a linguist, don't know the Greek 
well at all, in Hebrew, not at all. But I figured I would go to the, uh, since I wasn't going to Conwell, I would go to some of the professors because they were on the committees. And I went to Elmer Smick, who was the head of the Old Testament Committee of Translating. And I was asking him certain things. And I remember one point, I actually taped them at that time. And I, he said to me, you know, brother, it's rare for anyone to be able to go to the Bible without prejudice, without some preconceived beliefs that they have. And oftentimes that tilts us in a certain direction because our presuppositions outweigh our objective exegesis of the passage. I don't want, I'm not a, a, a Pentecostal, but I don't want to read, I, I don't want to look at a Pentecostal type passage and say, well, I'm not a Pentecostal, therefore I'm not going to, or I don't believe in women pastors or women ministry, whatever, and I'm, but can I objectively look at those verses and, and not have to feel like, oh, I, I, I can't differ from what, I've, what others around me believe or what my denomination believe or those who respect me believe. It might take some gut some time to, to take a stand. But this in all things has to have the preeminence in how you and I handle it, especially if we even take the pulpit. I remember hearing a tape. I'm going over probably more time than I should have, brother. Shame on you for giving me this liberty. When my notes are gone, forget it. You never know when I'm going to end. But I remember listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones on a tape, and he says, if I had one verse to read to the Plymouth Brethren, I would, it would be this verse in James. Brethren, be not many teachers, for the same shall receive greater judgment. And what he meant by that is this. If we allow those that are not skilled in the word, and I know we all fall, fall short of it, but it does take ones that are diligent, precise, exacting from the word. And I think that's what God expects of us. If anyone speaks, let him speak as an oracle of God. If any man ministers, let him minister according to the ability which God giveth.